Amen. Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, as we come, as I said earlier, to the end of our study of the last prophet of the Old Testament. Malachi, then, is just prior to the Gospel of Matthew in your Bible. And we are at Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. We consider these last prophetic words of God given to his people until the time of John the Baptist and Jesus. It'll be, friends, it'll be 400 years before a prophet speaks from God to people again with new revelation. What does God say to his people as the last thing he says to them as they wait that 400 years, they don't even know how long it'll be at the time. What does he say to them to to get them through the days of of struggle, of of tribulation and hardship, of sickness and illness and death? What does he do to speak into their lives to help them not be weary and faint-hearted and fall away? What does he say to his people to sustain them? As they aim to serve him. Well, he says here in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, as a conclusion to all that he said in this book, here is what he says. Listen then, friends, to the word of God. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen. This is God's word. Let's, let's bow before him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would exalt Jesus among us tonight, that we would see him and be drawn to him. And we pray that you would equip us to walk with you, and that by this word you would do our souls good. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything about the book of Malachi has been designed to prepare the ancient Jews for the coming of Jesus, their Savior and Lord. That's true of the message of the whole book, and that's also true of these last concluding verses of Malachi. God has been saying to them, listen to me as children to a father, and he's been He's been dialoguing with them, disputing with them again and again. Six disputations throughout the book of Malachi. He says, listen to me. And then here in the conclusion, he also says, and listen to Moses. Listen to my law. And and wait in anticipation for the coming prophet, Elijah. And listen to him. Why listen? Because it's all about Jesus. And I want you to know about him, that you would be spared this decree I'm warning you of. And so, 
Friends, the entire book and even these last verses are meant to lead us to faith in Jesus. And in that light, I want you to think about this passage and see that here clearly. Uh, Let me show you, let me remind you in the first place what he's already said to us. Then let's look at what he says in verse 4 about the law of Moses and how that leads us to Jesus. And look at verse 5 about the coming prophet and how that is meant to lead us to Jesus. And then let's ponder whether we are responding the way that we need to, the way that we ought. And so in the first place, let me invite you just by way of review for just a few moments, consider the the whole message of the book of Malachi and see again how it leads us to Jesus. You remember that God is confronting his people as a father to his children in six disputations, six uh, things over which they disagree that God will say, you people say this and God will say, but I tell you this. And they'll say, what are you talking about? And then he'll follow it up with an argument or evidence for what he's saying. And so consider that. Consider the meaning of it. Uh, How does this lead us to Jesus? In the first place, the first disputation, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, was about love, about God's love. The people were doubting that God, in fact, loved them. And God says, I have loved you. And in the midst of that, one of the things he says his love will do is it will preserve them as a people. Why? Because the Messiah is going to come from this people. And then in the second disputation, at chapter 1, verse 6 through 2, 9, the issue was the issue of atonement and worship. The priests and the people, you remember, were dishonoring The sacrifices, they were offering wild animals, torn animals, defiled animals at the altar. And God wanted them to offer pure offerings. And why is that? To point to the perfection of our great high priest Jesus, who will offer himself as a lamb without blemish in substitute for us. And to to offer defiled sacrifices in their day was to, in a sense, belittle Jesus even before he came. And so it was about Jesus, that worship and atonement is about him. And and the third disputation was in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, where God uh, spoke with them about the issue of marriage. And he said, I care about faithfulness in marriage. Why? Why does he care? Well, because he cares about us in the first place, of course, But because Jesus is going to come and marry to himself his church, his bride, and he's going to be faithful. God wants marriage in this life to be a reflection of the faithfulness of Jesus to his spouse. That's important. And then in the fourth thing, at chapter 2, verse 17, he began to speak to us about, about evil and our temptation to envy the prosperity of the wicked. And God says, don't think I don't know about that. Don't think I don't care about that. I do. And what am I going to do? I'm going to send Jesus. And what is Jesus going to do? He is going to be the Lord who comes to his people like a refiner's fire. And he's going to purify my people. Why? Because I care so much about evil. I'm going to judge it. But I want to spare you. And the way to be spared is to be purified. From your own evil. And Jesus is going to do that. 
And then in the fifth disputation at chapter 3, verse 6 and following, that was about us returning to the Lord. He says, you've, you've turned away from me. And, and he mentions the issue of money because the people had left God and they had become miserly toward him. And God says, don't you know in the first place that I am unchangeably faithful? I haven't turned. You have. But don't you know I'm abundantly generous and I will give the most precious possession I have for you, my own beloved son. That's why I want you to be a generous people, he says. Look how generous I am. And then we saw last time in in chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, the the sixth and final one, where, where the prophet confirms to us the value of serving God. Why is it worth it to serve God? Because God's promise for the righteous, those who trust in Jesus to be saved, is that Jesus, the righteous one, the son of righteousness, he calls him, will rise with healing in his wings. It'll be worth it. It's all about Jesus. The day of the Lord is coming. Trust in the Messiah, he says to these people. And that's what God told them. That's the purpose also of what he concludes with, beginning at verse 4. And so he says, listen to me. I want you to know about the coming Messiah. And then he says, at verse 4, a second thing, he says, remember what I've said to you a long time ago. Remember, he says, the law of my servant Moses, verse 4, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, what possible benefit could there be in remembering God's law, in remembering the Ten Commandments and the other various instructions God gave to Israel? What, what benefit, friends? Well, there's none. If, in fact, you misunderstand the point of the giving of the law and what it's for. In fact, much harm can be done if you misunderstand. Some people mistakenly think that the law is, is a stop sign. If you, they, they think, you know, the law of God is primarily uh, this killjoy. God, God doesn't want me to do anything. He doesn't want me to enjoy anything. And so God gave the law to stop all my fun. And if that's what you think the law is about, you will resent God telling you what to do. But it isn't that at all, friends. The law wasn't given as a stop sign. It was the family rule book for what it's like to live in the house of God, a house he's already made you a member of. We've been been reading through the Ten Commandments this summer, and I've been reading the preface very pointedly before we get to the law, because the preface is, I am the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery. Now... Now that I've redeemed you to myself and made you my people, now here's what it's like to live in my house under my roof with me as your father. That's what the law is about, friends. It's a law to to teach us how to live, what we were created for and redeemed for. Because God says, I want my children to be like me. It's a law that gives you the freedom to be what you were created to be in a safe way around others doing the same, like a law. That says speed limit 75 miles per hour because the road is designed to be driven 
safely at 75 miles an hour. So have fun. Have at it. That's what the law is for. It tells you what you're made for and redeemed for. It's not a killjoy. That's one mistake. And there's another one that's deadly. The other mistake is this. To think that the law of God is a ladder by which we climb our way into heaven. You know, with every rung of that ladder taking you a step higher, with each step being your own personal acts of obedience. People will say, I've got to do everything I can to obey as, as many as possible of these commandments and hope that in the last day, it'll be enough to please God. Friends, that mentality pervades the world and the church. But that isn't what the law is for at all. And if you think that way, friend, you will find the law to be absolutely oppressive to you. Because that ladder never ends. The call to obedience is relentless. And we all slip off and fall down that ladder again and again. And the moment you think you found the top of that ladder, you'll discover that ladder doesn't actually reach into heaven, but it actually descends into hell. Because you will never, though it promised you, it lied to you, you will never have done enough to please God and earn his favor. The law wasn't given So that you could do that because we had already displeased him in the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. It's too late for us to get into heaven by our perfect obedience. We've already disobeyed in many ways. In heart, mind, soul, thought. Friends, the Christian gospel is not that I can achieve by my works anything. That will please God. But I need to teach people to sing. Rock of ages. Not the labors of my hands. Could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal. No respite know. Could my tears forever flow. Tears of repentance. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. This is what the hymn writer says, and he's right. This is what the Bible says. So why is remembering the law beneficial? Because God gave his law, not that by obedience to it, the people should save themselves, but that under his law, they would be humbled by it. On the one hand, the law tells you what your duty is, and it shows you your failure to do your duty. And thus it makes you poor in spirit. It humbles you to cry out, God, save me. I can't save myself. This is what the Israelites heard on the mountain at Horeb, at Sinai. It's called both things in the Old Testament. When when they were standing before the mountain and God's voice rung out and they, they were given the Ten Commandments, with each successive commandment, you know what they were hearing in their ears? They were hearing guilty. 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 That's why they take steps back away from the mountain. They send Moses forward and say, you go up and talk to God. They're quaking with fear. And that's why God, who's already redeemed them and is being gracious to them, that's why God immediately says, having given them his law, he says, now build an altar. 
What's an altar for, friends? It's for sacrifice. And what's sacrifice for? It's to offer a substitute in death for our guilt. Because sin deserves death. And so, uh, friends, the law was meant to humble you, to call out to God to save you. And the law was meant to be a teacher taking you by the hand, walking you into and up to Jesus himself to be saved. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He's talking about faith in Christ. The law was a pointer to expose my sins and show me the real nature of my sinful heart. And the law was a signpost telling me Go to Jesus as the only one who can keep the law of God for you and bear the curse of a broken law on your behalf and then offer you salvation instead of judgment. Friends, this is why we we just sang it in the hymn writer. Let us love and sing and wonder, stanza one. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Why? He has hushed. The law's loud thunder, he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He's washed us with his blood and brought us nigh to God. And in stanza four, he says, let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ, our trust is justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Because this is what the law is for. To take you by the hand and lead you to Jesus. And so the law is good. Now their failure to pay attention to God's law, to remember it, it left them ignorant and blind when the lawgiver himself came in the flesh to his own people. And their failure to remember the law left them proud, too proud, to bow to the Savior being offered to them. And so he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, because it leads you to the Messiah. That's, that's the second thing he says. First, listen to my message. That's the book. Remember the law. That's the second thing. In verse 5 in the third place, look for the prophet. Look forward to the prophet I'm sending you, he says. Notice the language. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah, he says, is coming. Who is this Elijah? Well, by the time of Malachi, you may remember that Elijah the prophet had already been gone about 400 years. He hadn't died, but he'd actually been taken up live into heaven in the whirlwind in the chariot of fire. What would it mean then that that Elijah the prophet would come? Well, ever ever since the Lord said this through Malachi, the Jews have been expecting a literal return of the prophet Elijah. Elijah still plays a role in Jewish prayer today. He's mentioned in a prayer said after meals. They, they will pray this way. May God in his mercy send us the prophet Elijah. And even Orthodox Jews today, when they celebrate the Passover meal, they set a place at the table 
for Elijah if he happens to come. And the children are urged to keep the front door cracked so that he can get into the Passover meal should Elijah actually come to visit them. Jews today, believing Jews of of this stripe, are still waiting for Elijah to come. But that, friends, is a misplaced expectation because Jesus has told us Elijah has come. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, in a discussion about who is John the Baptist, Jesus says, John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. And when the angel Gabriel came to announce the, the, the birth of John, John the Baptist. He even quotes Malachi chapter 4 in Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Listen to it. This is the angel Gabriel saying, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, did you hear that language, friends? John is the Elijah who was to come. That's what the angel Gabriel says. That's what Jesus says of him. And so this prophecy has been fulfilled in his coming. And what is its purpose? What is his purpose? What was John the Baptist's purpose? It was to preach in the power and spirit of the prophet Elijah. And he placed the hearts of the Father in the children. It doesn't mean, the many hold that it means this. It means that the Elijah to come is going to do what? He's going to restore order in our family relationships. He's going to help fathers and sons patch things up between them. Now, does the gospel produce that if the gospel's at work in both sides of those of that relationship oh lord it, uh, friends it is designed by the lord to produce that and it produces mutual forgiveness and acceptance between fathers and sons because of jesus it does that that's true but i'm with others in this that what he actually is getting at this that the coming elijah is going to take the hearts of the people of his day the children, the descendants of Israelites, and turn them back to the fathers of old, back to the faith of Abraham and the faith of Moses and the faith of Samuel and the faith of David. Elijah will turn the hearts of the people back to the forefathers with whom God had originally established a relationship of grace. We know that the people needed a major change when John came and through The Elijah who was to come, God would turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers, back to the true faith, and he would bring them back in line with the faith of old. And he would represent the hearts of the fathers to the children, to the Israelites, to the descendants. And John did that. John kept the faith, and by his preaching, he prepared the way of the coming of the Lord Jesus And all of this, friends, all of this was designed. This this telling them, sit and wait in expectation for Elijah to come, all of this was designed to give them hope. To help them, as it were, sit on the edge of their seat 
in eager expectation for the next thing God was going to do because he was going to do it. And that hope was designed to help them. That hope was designed to sustain them. Expecting God to show up and finish what he started so that in dark days and in discouraging days, days of oppression, days where you wonder, what is God doing in the world? They could live in hope. And hope is important. It's important for everybody. We have hope. It's an anchor for our souls. Uh, there's a self-made billionaire named Eugene Land who, who uh, changed the lives of a sixth-grade class in Harlem. He went there. He was asked to speak to 59 sixth graders, and he was going to give a speech on trying to inspire them. Most of these students were, would drop out of school, predictably, over the course of their junior and senior high career. And uh, he wondered how he could even get these kids to look at him as he got up as a self-made millionaire to speak to all these children. And he decided to scrap his notes, and he began to say to them, stay in school. And I'll help pay the college tuition for every one of you. And at that moment, these lives of these kids were changed. As one of them said, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. Nearly 90% of that class went on to graduate from high school. Hope kept them going to see it through to the end. Friends, we, like the ancient Jew, we have hope. Our Savior has appeared, and he will appear again. And we await his second coming, his return, where he will come and he will do what? He will save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That hope gets us through the good and the bad and the ugly days of life in this broken world. As broken people. You need that hope, friends. God will do what he said he will do. He did it, and he will do it again. You need that hope. But this passage also helps us understand how we ought to understand the Bible together, friends. Whether it's Moses or Elijah, whether it's the law or the prophets, the whole book centers on Christ. This is why Paul, in in his epistle to Timothy, says... Um, Keep reading the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he's been talking to Timothy about about the Old Testament. It makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. This is why, friends, we teach from the Old Testament here at Redeemer. And when we do so, even from Malachi given to Israelites of old, why we talk about Jesus so much when we study his word. This book, friends, is Christian literature. And it is literature for the betterment and help of Christians. We are to profit by it. A believer in the Old Testament, a believer in the New Testament, have this in common. We believe in Christ. They look forward to a Christ who was promised who hadn't yet come. And we look back upon a Christ who has come in answer to the promise. Their book is our book, and their Savior is our Savior, and their destiny is our destiny. And so the message of Malachi, the call to remember the law, and the invitation to look forward to the coming of Elijah, are all about helping us trust 
and rest in Jesus. This book, however, closes with a warning. And it invites us to examine ourselves. And this is what we'll close with. Notice how he concludes at the end of verse 6. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is, that is surprising and shocking language. The Old Testament ends with a warning about the possibility of being utterly destroyed. What God did here was to treat the Israelites like he had treated the Canaanites in the time of Abraham. Why do I say that? The word used here, some translations actually uh, use the word curse, but the idea is actually picked up right out of Genesis chapter 15. It's the same language God used when he spoke to Abraham, entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, and promised Abraham that his descendants would live in the promised land. But he was going to have to wait 400 years for his descendants to make it there because the Canaanites were in the land and God was giving them 400 years to repent. And of course they weren't going to repent and they didn't repent and then their sin over the 400 years made them liable to judgment. God promised the destruction of the Canaanites. That's the word. And the Canaanites got 400 years in the land from the time of Abraham to the time the Israelites came out of Egypt and entered the promised land. And they didn't. They didn't repent. And they were destroyed by the Israelites. And now here, at the end of the book of Malachi, God, speaking to his own chosen people, the Israelites, threatens them with what he had done to the Canaanites. And I don't believe it's just a historical accident, because I don't believe in accidents. I don't want to make too much of this, but, but I don't believe it's a historical accident that the Israelites are going to have approximately 400 years from the time Malachi speaks to them and the coming of Jesus. They're going to get about the same amount of time as the Canaanites got. And what we know is this, that when Jesus came, his own did not receive him. There were some who believed, no doubt, but many did not. And as the Canaanites were put under the ban and devoted to destruction, so also the Israelites. For they rejected the Messiah and they made themselves liable to judgment. And Israel was driven out of the land by the Romans. God's word of threat that closed the Old Testament came true in their nation's experience. Because God always does what he says he will do. But that is not the last word in God's word about the Israelites. You have to go into the New Testament, friends, to find that God speaks to Gentile and Jew. To say, I have sent my son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And so in the New Testament, by contrast with the Old, the New Testament ends not with a word of curse, but it ends with a word of grace and a promise of blessing. If you go to the end of your Bible in Revelation 22, you will find there that grace gets the last word. 
Why? Because of Christ. Because He fulfilled the law on our behalf. And because He came in answer to the promise of the prophets. For all believers, He has removed the curse and replaced it with blessing, with grace. And so the New Testament ends with these words. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Put your trust in him, friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are far more abundant and have been far more gracious than we would have ever anticipated had we been a Jew before the coming of Jesus. And you are far more gracious than we know today. Teach our hearts to need Jesus and to lean and rest on the Savior of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.